this is a picture of my wife and I when we were first married. We were so young. We look back on that now and we say we didn't really know anything. And even though we had known each other for a couple of years at that point, we really didn't know each other very well. We had dated for a year, actually. And in that time of dating, there was a, a particular moment when we were dancing together to a slow song called, I Love the Way That You Love Me. And it was one of those moments that I didn't want to ever end, but it was also one of those moments where I just had solidified in my heart that Heather was the woman that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, and also that it seems entirely appropriate for our life to feel like that moment, to feel like a dance. And we'll be the first to admit that it hasn't always felt that way. There are times where we've stepped on each other's toes, metaphorically. There are times where we didn't want to dance with one another. But it does strike me that the metaphor of a dance is a perfect way to describe what marriage ought to be, at least from a Christian perspective. And I find it really interesting that at many weddings, oftentimes the, the time of a husband and wife gets kicked off together with a dance. And I think that that's illustrative of, of what marriage should be. Not two people kind of dancing in proximity to one another, kind of doing their own thing, but two coming together as one and dancing together. And so we're going to call our study today The Dance of Marriage, and we're going to look at that passage that was just read for us and dive into it. And I just want to make a couple of preliminary remarks as we get ready to dive into this passage. First of all, this is a passage that's directed to the community of faith. And yes, this letter to the Ephesians was written to a group of followers of Jesus living in the ancient city of Ephesus. But it's also written to a community of faith that was wanting to learn what it meant to follow Jesus. And so even though those communities of faith are much like our own, where there are married and single people, there are folks who have lost their spouse, no doubt, and people who have lost their relationship. But it was nevertheless written to a community of faith to think about what God calls husbands and wives to, but also to be able to look through that institution of marriage, to see something much greater than the institution itself, the truth about Christ and his own church. So we're going to look at this passage and seek to understand what Jesus calls us to through his apostle Paul. And what I want to do is to, before we get to those instructions specifically, is to kind of set up and notice several assumptions that the Apostle Paul is making as he gives these directions to husbands and wives. And then we can understand something of the context of what he's calling them to. So the passage begins, or where we began today, was in chapter 5, verse 1. And the Apostle says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. He wants the community of faith is called together under the banner of Jesus Christ to be imitators of God, specifically as beloved children. The Apostle John, in his letter, said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so the first key assumption that the apostle makes in setting up this discussion about husbands and wives is simply this. Christians will want to imitate their heavenly father who is love and loves them. He goes on in verse 2 and says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We know from studying various words for Greek in the, in the um, 
original language, that this word that is being used here describes that selfless, sacrificial kind of love. And so the second key assumption is that Christians are learning to walk in love just as Christ loved them. Verse 15, he continues, Look carefully then how you walk. Remember, he's just called us to walk in love. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so here's the third key assumption he brings to the table. Christians are being continually filled with God's Spirit. That is, we understand our need of dependence upon the Spirit of God to do anything that he calls us to. And so he's assuming that husbands and wives who are hearing his instructions are wanting to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he continues, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this is the fourth key assumption he makes. Christians are submitting themselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the context, that's the background. Those are the assumptions he's making as he gets ready to address what are sometimes called household codes, how husbands and wives and everyone in the household relates to one another. And so he says in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now I want to make just a a key observation here. In the In the original um, translation, I'm sorry, the original writing, there is no heading in between verse 21 and verse 22. I just took a snapshot of a heading of my digital Bible, and you can see here there's a heading put in by the translators, uh, wives and husbands. And that's a helpful tool to kind of understand maybe a shift in where he's going. But what we need to know is that there's no heading there. And actually, it's a continual sentence from verse 21 to verse 22. So if we were to take a literal translation of those two verses, it would read like this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. So there's actually not a direct command in verse 22 to submit. It just follows out of what he said in verse 21 about submitting to one another. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to apply that concept of submitting to one another to wives first. And so when we hear this directive, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord, someone might be thinking in their own minds, how is this any different than what was already expected of wives in the Roman Greco culture? And that's a very good question. And I want to kind of help set this up for us by making just a key observation about the culture at that time. In the ancient Greco-Roman culture, wives submitted to their husbands because females were ontologically inferior to males. That's a big word, but it simply means in essence. We can thank Aristotle for this (laughs) terrible view of women, but women were seen really as defective men. They were weak. They didn't have standing in society. And so in that culture, women responded to husbands in this way simply because they were, in essence, inferior. Now, Paul is not thinking along those lines there. He's thinking about something entirely different we're going to look at in just a moment here. But one other 
key aspect of this we should understand is that in that day, people didn't marry because of love. Marriage was a social arrangement, oftentimes made between families, to secure offspring that inheritance rights can flow through. So in that culture, husbands oftentimes would take a wife to themselves, and that wife was a client. He was the patron. He was the one who had all the power. And so he provided for her, and it was expected as an inferior that she would respond with thanksgiving and submission. And if she didn't, it was recognized in that culture that the husband could actually have his wife put to death. He could actually have that right over his children as well. And so even though the culture viewed women as inferior to men, the Apostle Paul doesn't. And I think there's a key aspect that he signals with this. When he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord, he's signaling a different story about reality. And I'm going to highlight that by what he says next. In verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, in English, when we think of someone being a head of something, we typically think of the person chiefly in charge. Like if we go to a business and we want to talk to the manager, we ask the question, who's in charge here? Who's the head? And that's directed to us. Um, it can also be used to describe the head of an animal or a head of a human. But what I want to highlight here is that the Apostle Paul is using a specific word that doesn't refer, refer to someone being a ruler. If he wanted to talk about who's in charge, who's the boss, he would have used the word archon. I know I'm getting a little bit geeky with the Greek here, but he uses the word kephale, which simply describes either a person's head, physical head on their body or an animal, or the person who is an origin or a source of life or identity for another person. And so what I want to submit to you is he doesn't use archon for a very specific purpose. He's signaling, rather, a story and a story about creation. Stick with me, if you will. We kind of go back to what I think Paul is signaling here when he talks about the husband being the head of the wife. He's referring to a story that these Christians have already been told, and that's the story of creation. Remember back in the early pages of the Bible, we're told that the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper, helper fit for him. And a few weeks ago, as we looked specifically at this passage, we recognized that that word helper is, in the Bible, almost always used to refer to God himself as the one who brings help to mankind, um, oftentimes when they're in distress. So when the scripture uses that word helper for man, it's not a denigration of woman. If anything, it's a recognition that the man needs help. And so God sets about to fashion a helper for him. And we're told in chapter 2, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the sides, his sides, and closed up the place with flesh. And the side that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. And so here, we see him talking about this woman as if she is part of himself. From the one, God made two in order to bring the two back together as one. In fact, this passage signs off here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so God created man and woman. 
As we're told in the opening page of Genesis, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So my friends, just note from this story that the Apostle Paul himself was indwelling and calling others to indwell, that the man and the woman are both equally created in the image of God. They are both equally blessed by God and both equally given the task of dominion. But not as just isolated human beings, as two that have been brought together to partner with one another. And so as we observed earlier in our series, from the beginning, the picture is of a husband and wife standing side by side to reign over God's creation together as king and queen with God. This was God's creational intent. And so when husbands and wives live into this, there's a sweetness to it that's captured for us, for example, in the Song of Songs, where the bride says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. The Roman world may not have married for love, but God's original design was that love would be the center of marriages. And so Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands is to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. I submit to you, my friends, he's rooting these wives in the story of what God has done from the very beginning and bringing two together. And in doing so, what he's giving to these wives is the ability to see themselves differently than the way the rest of the culture sees them even if the culture doesn't recognize their giftedness and even their equality with men, God does. And so they're given this option that no one else, maybe even not even their husbands are given, to see themselves as a partner for their husband, as his royal partner, to see themselves as God sees themselves. And so he goes on in verse 23, and building on that, he says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I want us to tread carefully here because this verse is oftentimes taken out of context and made to um, manipulate and, and almost being weaponized against women. I remember one time as a college student hearing a group of Christians talking, and one guy started taunting um, a girl in our group and said that the Bible says all women have to submit to all men. And I was, didn't know the Bible well enough, and I, I look back on shame now and didn't stand up and say anything because I didn't know any better. But here, wives are called to submit to their husbands. It's not a call for them to submit to any man who might be in existence out there. But we also need to be careful with this because the Scriptures does not call a wife to follow her husband into sin. The husband says to his wife, Hey, honey, uh, I want us to, to cut corners on our taxes and to cheat just a little bit. If we do just a little bit, we get this windfall back, and it'll be really nice. We could take a good vacation together. No, the husband is not supposed to lead his wife that way. Uh, the wife is not supposed to follow her husband in this way. But she is to recognize that she is his partner, created by God to be a helper fit for him, as the scriptures has just told us. They journey together through life. And so that's the call. Here's a key thought. Maybe I can put it this way. The wife can view herself as one who submits herself to Christ out of reverence for him by submitting herself to her husband's care. She can see herself as God sees her, as a royal partner to her husband, even if her husband doesn't see her in that way. 
And someone says, all this talk about submission seems like permission for the husband to subjugate his wife. And let me just say, that is not at all what Paul is giving permission to men to do. We're going to see that in just a moment. That's exactly the opposite. But I do want to recognize that a lot of men, and even times in Christian churches, will see what is said to the women as an opportunity for them to kind of rule their family with an iron hand. And that is absolutely wrong. If anything, we're told in Scripture that one of the effects of the fall is, for example, as it says in Genesis chapter 3 to the wife, your desire shall be for your husband, yet he shall rule over you. Remember the picture from the beginning was husbands and wives standing together as one, blessed by God, created equally before God, both given the the task of dominion, but now that the fall has taken place, the reality is her husband oftentimes rule over her. That is not at all what Paul is saying. I want you to listen closely to what Paul does say, because if any man in that original congregation would have said, aha, this is exactly what I want to preach at Paul, (laughs) what comes next is something that they would not be expected. Verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. No one in that world was expected to love their wives. Marriage was a business arrangement. That's not to say that some husbands didn't truly love their wives, but that wasn't really what was expected. Oftentimes husbands, if they wanted love, would look outside their families to a mistress. And so here, Paul directing these Um, Roman Christians, in the way they ought to treat one another, tells men to love their wives. This is their calling. Regardless of their feelings, regardless if they think their wife is worthy of their love, they are called to love their wives. And we're told here, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, I find this to be really interesting and convicting, (laughs) It's not just simply Paul says, hey, guys, love your wives and kind of figure out what that looks like. He says, oh, I know exactly what it's going to look like. The kind of love I'm calling you to with your wife is the kind of love that looks just like what Christ did in loving his wife. How did Christ love his wife? He lived for her and he died for her. His wife being the church, the bride. There's a place in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus calls his disciples together and he kind of reorients their way of thinking about power and the way things are done in this world. So he calls them together and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But it shall not be so among you. Any power that is given In whatever context, it could be business, it could be in the community, it could be in family life, whatever power you might have is not used to lord it over other people. That's the way the world does it. And Jesus says specifically, it should not be this way among you. But whoever would be great among you must become your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If anyone had the right to be served, it was Jesus. And Jesus said, look, I didn't even come to be served, but rather to serve. 
And so what Jesus is doing here is he's reorienting for his disciples the way they think naturally. And he says, I don't want you to do it like the world does. They use power plays to lord it over one another. I'm calling you to be a servant. If you want to be great, how about this? Become a great servant. And so in this context that we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's not calling husbands to prance around acting um, all larger than life and wanting everyone to serve them. He's calling them to serve their wives. And I love the way that one of my professors at seminary put it. The crown the, husbands wear, the husband wears is more like a crown of thorns. Paul is calling husbands to die to themselves and to serve their wives. I didn't understand necessarily what all this meant when I first got married, but when Heather and I were engaged, um, I asked her if she wouldn't mind when she got the ring that she wanted to give me on our wedding day to get one that has a crown of thorns. I can't pull it off now all of a sudden. (laughs) A crown of thorns uh, carved into the gold. And for me, this was a signal that what I'm supposed to do in loving my wife has already been defined for me. I live for her, and I die for her. And I haven't always done that well. My wife will be the first to admit that. Um, But that's what I wanted to do from the very beginning, not to act like I should be served, but to serve and to lay down my life for my wife. Paul goes on in verse 26. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, if the previous command given to the husbands to love their wives sounded a bit scandalous, what he says here about the way Christ treated his bride, the church, would have just been off the charts. They had no categories for this. Why is that? Because you see with the words I've highlighted here, cleansing and washing, without spot or wrinkle. This is ideas of of washing and laundering and ironing. And no man in the ancient empire of Rome did these things. These were tasks reserved for wives or for slaves or servants. And so what Paul is doing here, I think is brilliant in talking about how Jesus used his authority and his power. If I can put it bluntly, Jesus takes the role of the servant. He takes up the tasks that are normally considered to belong to the realm of the wife, and he gladly does that. He serves her. So here's the key thought. Just like Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, humbled himself by becoming a servant to serve his bride, so too Christian husbands are called to humble themselves by becoming a servant in order to serve their bride. Do you see that, my friends? The task, the role, so to speak, that the Savior gives to the husband is a role and a task to serve. Paul goes on and says in verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I think we're meant to hear an echo of that passage in Genesis where Adam says, this at last is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So scripture takes this image of Christ being the head and his bride, the church, being his body to instruct how husbands are to think of themselves as the head, uh, as Adam was with the source of his wife, so he should look on his own wife as his own flesh and blood and to love her, to nourish her, to cherish her. And so, wives, you can check out for just a second. I want to ask the husbands here, or future husbands, this question. Husbands, your wife is bone of your bones and flesh of your flesh. Do you love her? Serve her? Nourish her? And cherish her? I'm sorry to ask that question. (laughs) But also, you're welcome. This passage calls wives and husbands to incredible heights to be in such a way with one another that they act as one, that they become one, that they flesh that out. And so husbands are called to love and to cherish and to serve, to lay down their life if necessary for their wives. So husbands, if you don't know for sure, if you do this, ask your wife how she experiences you. Ask her how how she gets along with the way you are in the house. Maybe ask her, how how is it hard to be around me? What do I do that that makes it difficult for you sometimes to be married to me? There could be great insight, friends, in being able to do that. But it takes humility for us to be able to humble ourselves and to seek to serve our wives. All right, so what the Apostle Paul does here in talking about what husbands ought to do for their wives, quotes the book of Genesis. And he says, look, God made the two so that they could become one flesh. And so husbands need to think of themselves as partners with their wives and she being a partner to him, and they exist and function together as one flesh. And it's interesting, in verse 32 here he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. In other words, when the Apostle Paul looks at what God did at the beginning in creating Adam and Eve to come together as one, he's saying in that, is the pattern that God intentionally set up to talk about Christ and his church. We're going to talk about this in just a a couple weeks at the conclusion of this series, but for now the key thought is this. The reason why there is such a thing as marriage is so that we can have a living picture of Christ's sacrificial love for his bride, the church, and the church's loving response to Christ. I think if we begin to understand this, For those of us who are married, for those of us who want to be married, we can see that we want people to look at who we are, thank you, and the way we conduct ourselves in marriage so that it becomes a testimony to the way that Christ treats his wife, the church, and the way the church responds in love to her husband. Thank you, Dan. Here is how the Apostle Paul wraps this section up. He says, however... Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He concludes by saying, Husbands, let each of you love your wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want to highlight something here 
and I might, in doing so, uh, cause a few um, questions about how translations work here. But what is almost universally the case in English translations is a key word gets left out of verse 33. And it's a word that, in, that indicates purpose. And it's almost always translated as in order that. So that the proper way that this verse should be translated, if we translate it literally from the Greek, is like this. Let each of you love his wife as himself, so that the wife may respect her husband. I bring this up because the way that English is normally translated oftentimes gives men the permission, it seems in their minds, to not be as loving as they should be to their wives and yet demand unconditional respect from his wife. And it seems to me that the way the scripture literally is translated tells me that if a man is not receiving respect from his wife, then that's kind of a canary in the coal mine, indicating that he's not loving her well. Let each of you love his wife as himself, so that the wife may respect her husband. In other words, husbands, we're called to make it easy for our wives to give respect to us. And if we don't love them well, there are issues there that are not just her fault or problem. And so, if I could kind of summarize this for us, it would be like this. Husbands and wives are called to submit themselves in love and service to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me say that one more time. Husbands and wives are called to submit themselves in love and service to one another out of reverence for Christ. So just a couple points of application here. Let's run to Christ for forgiveness and empowerment. When I think about running to Christ for forgiveness in this situation, I'm thinking in terms of having a low view of marriage. I'm thinking in terms of those of us who are married, who have not loved and served our spouses well. I'm thinking about, for, for those of us who live with regret, to let the forgiveness of Christ mark us, rather than how we may have failed in relationships in the past. And when I say let's render Christ for empowerment, I'm thinking in terms of what Paul said as he set this text up. We are called to be filled with the Spirit. And so as we think about Forgiveness that we need, how we need power to be able to do what we're called to do, both wives and husbands in this dance of marriage, we need God to be at work in us. Because left to ourselves, we don't naturally relate this way to one another. But when the gospel begins to work in us, it begins to transform our affections and our desires. And there's this verse in 1 John chapter 4 that I have loved since my wife and I first got married. In fact, it's been kind of a theme verse for us over the years. We love because he first loved us. And so whether you're married or not, this is the calling of all of us, is to become people of love. That's how Ephesians chapter 5 set itself up. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And so that's meant to transform us, and especially those who have the context of marriage in which they find themselves. Love is supposed to be played out exactly there. So here's the second point of application. Let's humble ourselves like Jesus in becoming the best servants we can be. Husbands are called, I'm sorry, wives are called to uh, submit to their husbands 
to see their partnership with their husband as a unified whole, even though their husbands or the culture doesn't see that. And husbands are called to love their wives. And this both calls each of us, regardless of what role that we're playing, to humble ourselves and to become servants. You remember that passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, where Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, had his disciples all around him, and he took off his outer garments and knelt before them, taking up water and a towel and washed their feet. That was a powerful moment because masters, teachers, rabbis didn't do this kind of thing. This was done for them. And so Jesus, with just a few hours left with them, wanted to give them a living, breathing image that they can live into. And so he washes their feet. And then he asks them this question. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. What does this mean for us? It means that all of us should intentionally be be seeking to become more like Jesus, being willing to humble ourselves and to serve others. That is applicable to us no matter if we're old or young, rich or poor, male or female, married or single. All of us should seek to grow in this element of Christ-likeness. We're willing to serve others. But for those of us who are married, marriage is the context in which we get to practice becoming a servant just like Jesus. And so I think for some of us, that means we need to apologize. We have not served our spouses well. And the first step to fleshing out this is to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've hurt you. I'm sorry I've been centered too much on my own self. I'm sorry that I've not loved you as Christ loved the church. I'm sorry that I've tried to subvert you every step along the way. But there's another question, I think, that is just as powerful. And that question is this. How can I serve you? How can I come alongside you and make life easier for you? How do you need your load lightened? How can I help carry the burden you're carrying? Let me tell you, in my own marriage with Heather, I don't know when we started doing this, but we kind of just started both doing this together. And when we sought to kind of outdo one another and showing honor to one another and seeking to serve one another, it has made our relationship so much sweeter. Wouldn't you agree, Heather? Um, to, To just come alongside one another and not demand to be served, but to serve. Me laying down my life for my wife, dying to myself, seeking to serve her, her coming alongside me, seeking to partner with me in our marriage and life together. That question, how can I serve you, is a powerful question. I'm going to make a reference to Chick-fil-A. We all know how they say, my pleasure, right, when we say thank you to them. What if it really was our pleasure to serve? Not because we're getting paid to, not because we work for a company who's clever enough to market that phrase, but what if it really was our pleasure to serve others? 
It was Jesus' pleasure to do that. And what if those of us who are husbands and wives really had pleasure in serving one another? As I get ready to wrap this up here, I want to introduce you to um, some friends of mine, Shing and Hannah. They were um, a wonderful couple in our church in Calgary, and we just loved them. They were uh, lovely people, they were bright and energetic, and they came together in the covenant of marriage. And one of the interesting things before the ceremony was over and before the dancing began is they wanted to do something to communicate the, the tone that they wanted to have in their marriage. And so before the service was over, Shing knelt down before his wife, beside a bowl of water, took off her shoes, and washed her feet. And then they changed positions. And Hannah took his feet and washed them as well. I've never seen that before in a wedding. And I've done dozens of weddings over the years. Uh, But I saw here a couple, both of whom are Christians, wanting to communicate to their family, wanting to communicate to all their friends who had gathered around them that their marriage was going to be a marriage in which they served one another. So just like the wife is called to the role of being a helper for her husband, so too the husband is called to the role of being a servant to his wife. My friends, that is the dance of marriage. And when both husbands and wives are living into this, it becomes a beautiful dance. And when they don't, it becomes discordant and harmful. And so, my friends, may you be a people who seek to submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, and may you cherish and delight in marriages that spotlight the eternal dance between Christ and his church.